Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai and in all the ways that you might be watching, uh, whether that's on Facebook Live, any one of our television apps, uh, or on our mobile app, we thank you for making us a part of your Sabbath routine. Right now, it is September 4th, and uh, we are uh, feverishly planning to get ready for all of the fall holidays, and uh, if uh, you have not seen the announcement yet, um, we are excited to announce that we are going to be holding a online conference for the for Yom Teruah this year, that that will be uh, September 18th through the 20th. It'll be an online conference that we will give you access to uh, for a donation of any amount. If you go to yomteruah.com, or sorry, yomteruahevent.com, you can uh, register there. You can uh, make your donation of any amount, and then we will send you the link and have access to all of the teachings that we'll, we will be doing over that weekend and celebrating the Feast of Trumpets. And we have many teachers that are coming and uh, who are sending in teachings and material, worship sets, as well as uh, children's program and youth program uh, broadcasts that are available online uh, for that entire weekend. We'll be releasing those teachings over the course of the weekend, and you can uh, celebrate with us and join with us for another one of the appointed times uh, in wherever you might be from the comfort of your own home and celebrate with us to be a part of that online conference. We had great success with that for Shavuot, which we needed to do because of all the situation going on in the world. But for Yom Teruah, we're very excited to uh, kind of use that same model. And it was a great blessing to the brethren back in the spring. And we're looking forward to uh, utilizing the same format for Yom Teruah as well. So once again, if you go to yomteruahevent.com, all the information is there. You can make your donation, and be, we look forward to you joining us uh, that weekend to celebrate once again one of the other appointed times with us. We pray that you are blessed by all of the broadcasts and things that we do here at Lion and Land Ministries. If the Lord would stir in your heart to make a donation, you can do so at llgive.com and uh, many different ways that you can make your donation. And we greatly appreciate it as we continue to labor for the kingdom of God and to continue to be good stewards of the Lord's resources. And we pray you are blessed by everything that we do here at Lion and Land Ministries. Once again, thank you for joining us. Now let us set apart this Sabbath from the rest of the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Borei 
Hagafen. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Chamotzi. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, for her, and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha Nedahar Bachudesh Nohoratechilot Osefele Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshamu Vene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Barit Olam, Bene of Ayom, Bene Israel, Othi Lerlam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadunai, et Hashmaim, Vet Haret, Vayom Hashavi, Shavat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha v'shinan tam lavenecha v'depardabam b'shivtcha b'yetcha uv'latcha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ota yadecha v'heyu latotavolt b'inenecha u'chetavtam amazuzo b'techa uv'sherecha all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This first song has a bit of a testimony to it. Um, I was desperate to get my in-laws to understand uh, this walk. And um, it took a while. The final, the final thing that uh, really got them in was actually Monty, some teachings of Monty. But I, I could tell that they were turning. I remember one day that mother-in-law, she phoned me up and said, Andrew, have you ever read Psalm 19? Um, and I could just tell something was changing because it's a wonderful psalm that speaks about the Torah, uh, the ways of our God. And the psalmist, yeah, we have such baggage in the church, but the psalmist just speaks about, it's perfect. The law of God is perfect. It, turns the soul and gives joy to the heart and lives forevermore. And, uh, and so I hope you like this version. This is actually, uh, this, this is the psalm that got me, got me writing psalms because as I saw those words, I just thought, wow, there's some wonderful words here. The heavens declare the glory of 
it means to be separate from our land, our people, our city, Jerusalem, the holy place. Yes, Father, you are omnipotent and you are omnipresent. You're everywhere. But, Father, we've been exiled and estranged from you in many ways. And in many ways, Father, we long to return our inheritance. And Father, restore us in our day, I pray. By the rivers of Babylon We sat and wept When we remembered Zion Jerusalem, may I forget. 
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Kitavo, chapter 26. Then it shall be when you enter the land which Adonai your Elohim gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that Adonai your Elohim gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where Adonai your Elohim chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, 
I declare this day to Adonai my Elohim that I have entered the land which Adonai swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of Adonai your Elohim. You shall answer and say before Adonai your Elohim, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to Adonai, the Elohim of our fathers. And Adonai heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground, which you, O Adonai, has given me. And you shall set it down before Adonai your Elohim, and worship before Adonai your Elohim. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which Adonai your Elohim has given you and your household. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow that they may eat it in your towns and be satisfied. You shall say before Adonai your Elohim, I have removed the sacred portion from my house and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of Adonai my Elohim. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to our fathers. This day, Adonai, your Elohim, commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared Adonai to be your Elohim and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances and listen to his voice. Adonai has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to Adonai your Elohim, as he has spoken. Chapter 27 Then Moshe and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Yarden to the land which Adonai your Elohim gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which Adonai your Elohim gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as Adonai, the Elohim of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Yarden, you shall set them up on Mount Eval, these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to Adonai your Elohim, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of Adonai your Elohim of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to Adonai your Elohim, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before Adonai your Elohim. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Then Moshe and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, be silent and listen, O Yisrael. This day you have become a people for Adonai your Elohim. You shall therefore obey Adonai your Elohim and do his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. 
Moshe also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Yarden, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Yosef, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Eval, Reuven, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to Adonai, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with any animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Chapter 28 Now it shall be, if you diligently obey Adonai your Elohim, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, Adonai your Elohim will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey Adonai your Elohim. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Adonai shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you and they will come out against you one way and flee from before you seven ways. Adonai will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which Adonai your Elohim gives you. Adonai will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of Adonai your Elohim and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of Adonai, and they will be afraid of you. Adonai will make you abound in prosperity, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your beast, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which Adonai swore to your fathers to give you. Adonai will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Adonai will make you the head and not the tail, and you will only be above, and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of Adonai your Elohim, which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. But it shall come about, if you do not obey Adonai your Elohim, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country.
Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Adonai will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Adonai will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. Adonai will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. Adonai will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Adonai shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Adonai will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Adonai will smite you with the madness and with the blindness and with bewilderment of heart, and you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness, and you will not prosper in your ways. But you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you will have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually. But there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up all the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. Adonai will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Adonai will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where Adonai drives you. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather of the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. You shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all of your trees and the produce of your ground. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you will be the tail. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey Adonai your Elohim by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever, because you did not serve Adonai your Elohim with joy and a glad heart, 
for the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom Adonai will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Adonai will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which Adonai your Elohim has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom Adonai your Elohim has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward his wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat since he has nothing else left during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all your towns. The refined and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes, and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs, and toward her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else, during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear his honored and awesome name, Adonai your Elohim, then Adonai will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues, and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also every sickness and every plague, which not written in the book of this law, Adonai will bring on you until you are destroyed then you shall be left few in number, whereas you are as numerous as the stars of the heaven, because you did not obey Adonai your Elohim. It shall come about that as Adonai delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so Adonai will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, Adonai will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there Adonai will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and you shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, Would that it were evening! And at the evening you shall say, Would that it were morning! Because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and for the sight of your eyes which you will see. Adonai will bring you back to Egypt in ships, by the way about which I spoke to you, 
you will never see it again. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which Adonai commanded Moshe to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moshe summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that Adonai did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants in all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, Adonai has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am Adonai your Elohim. When you reached this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them, and we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reuveni, the Gadi, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Kitavo. Now, Kitavo, this parashah starts off with these words. When you enter the land. Are we in the land? Not quite. Not for most of us. Now, for most of us, we're on the border of our promised land, just like they were here. But we're kind of still in the wilderness, so to speak. Still striving to dwell in his presence. But he has promised that during our time of wandering in this wilderness, that he will take care of us. Our clothing... Our sandals, they won't wear out. He'll sustain us with food, with water, with everything that we need for our sustenance. Speaking of wandering, one of my personal favorite verses is here in chapter 26, verse 5, where it says, You shall answer and say before Adonai your Elohim, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. Now, I love this verse for several reasons. First, we all know the song, I am Father Abraham's, and so are you. We, most of us all sang this song as, as a kid. And uh, being familiar with that song, we all know the promise that comes, that we are all uh, spiritual descendants of Abraham through the faith. Secondly, we're all able to identify with Abraham on so many different levels. He wandered. We're basically currently wandering. We're, we're not yet to our promised land, just like he wandered to that promised land. Like him, we can see it. We can clearly identify its borders, but we can't yet lay claim to the land. But there's a day coming when we will be able to. Additionally, we're given the wonderful example through his story that though we may be few in number, though we may be in a land that is not our own, the Adonai will cause us to prosper and multiply in the land of our wandering, just as he did for our father Avraham, as long as we are, as we read in this portion, keeping his commandments. In return for all the ways that he promises to sustain us, prosper us, and multiply us while we wander, what does Adonai ask of us in return? Chapter 26, verse 16 tells us, This day, Adonai your Elohim commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all of your heart. 
and with all of your soul. Now, where have we heard uh, that phraseology before? With all of your heart and with all of your soul. The Shema. So, even if it appears at times like our promised land is still far away, even during the times when it seems like the journey ahead of us is far too long, far too treacherous, filled with too many tests that challenge us to our cores, let's not lose sight of the fact that He has fulfilled His promises before and that He will do so again for us. So may we learn to truly serve Him with all of our hearts and all of our souls, that the blessings that are here would be ours, not the curses. And may we see each other someday soon in the promised land. May we all be gathered there together. And next year, may we be able to say, not next year in Yerushalayim, but this year in Yerushalayim. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 60. Our Haftor portion this week is uh, all of chapter 60, and this is the sixth of seven Haftor portions called The Consolation of Israel, The Redemption of Jerusalem. For those of you who have been part of the past broadcast, we're telling this great story of redemption. Uh, and this is a homiletic sermon that has been around for a long time. In fact, we think it's the longest sermon, or as the oldest sermon, I should say. And it's a pretty long when it lasts seven weeks. But it's the oldest sermon that we can find evidence of sermonizing that's been done with the Bible. And this is a well-known Jewish sermon. And we teach it every year as a part of going through the Torah cycle. And it's just chocked full of explanations of redemption and about and what we understand to be the work of the Messiah, including his second coming, is embedded within this. Now, a lot of times when I talk to my Jewish brethren and we bring up the subject of redemption, they tend to view redemption as something that happens at a corporate level for all of Israel. And that is true. That, that does happen. But what they don't quite seem to understand is that when the Messiah comes, he comes bringing a personal redemption for us as well. That what God <laughs> knows us intimately and personally as well as besides the nation and all of the people of the kingdom. And one of the things that, um, that uh, my Jewish brethren fail to understand is that Israel, when it speaks of Israel here, is not just the confined spade of where the Jews lived. That Israel includes all the people of Israel. That is also the house of Israel besides the house of Judah. And it includes all the companions from all over the world that join with them to worship the God of Israel. And so Israel is not just a Jewish thing. That's the name of the kingdom, the whole big kingdom. You know, the one the Messiah is in charge of where he's the king of all nations. Uh, and so forth. And these prophecies, when it speaks of the corporate uh, redemption, it's not exclusively to just Jewish people. It is speaking about the kingdom of God that will be on earth called Israel. And that's the name of the kingdom. 
uh, that he'll be headquartered from Jerusalem. And so therefore, a lot of this redemption talk is pointed at Jerusalem, is talking about Jerusalem and uh, so forth, because that's the headquarters, uh, you will, of, of the whole country. If I were to just focus in on Washington, D.C., and I said, well, Washington, will D.C. will do this, and Washington, D.C. will do that, you wouldn't make the mistake of thinking, hey, it's just the people that live near Delaware or Baltimore, you know, that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the whole country. Well, the same thing is when we address and talk about Jerusalem and Israel here, we're talking about the whole kingdom, not just a segment of it. And so the language here is at that level. It's talking about the whole kingdom. Now, my Christian friends, they make the same mistake my Jewish brethren do, but on the flip side. They think that the Messiah came to do personal redemption, and there is no great, greater corporate redemption for Israel. You know, they, in their estimation, Israel had a shot at the Messiah. They messed it up. They lost it. It now went to the nations, and God's done with Israel. That's absolutely wrong and absolutely false, and anybody teaching it's heretical. Uh, it is very false. Uh, the Messiah made promises to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will still fulfill those promises to their descendants. Uh, and he's still the Messiah, still with personal redemption. Praise God that the personal redemption extends to all peoples of the world, just as he promised to Abraham that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed, um, and that's the personal redemption is the one that expands out to that. But the corporate redemption is when he absorbs all of them and brings them all in. Now, I mention those things and I, because as we're getting to this final, these final Hoftors of consolation, the really good stuff that it's talking about here is at a much farther expanded level. It's not just at the people who got kicked out of the land because of sin and got scattered in the nations. It's, it's when he brings them back, he also brings back all the people, all his saints, uh, from the different nations. Now, the past, I'm going to read through this passage to you, the initial part of the passage, and I want you to understand, as we're reading through it, that my Jewish brethren, the rabbis and so forth, they see this as one of the most powerful metaphors in all of Scripture. Huge metaphor. They would be wrong about that. The words here are very literal as to what we're about to read. So I want you to keep that in mind. People tend to view this as a metaphor. I want to tell you this is looking very literal. For us in the last days, it's becoming very obvious to us. So beginning at chapter 60 at verse 1, follow along as I read for you. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about, and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba 
will come. They will bring gold, frankincense, and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And, the, and all the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, the rams of Naboth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like cloud and like the doves to the lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now, when I said to you that this is literal, let me go ahead and let's fast forward. What do the prophets say that's supposed to be happening to the last generation and at the very end of the ages before the Messiah comes? Well, they tell us that the period of time leading up to the coming Lord, seeing the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, that there's a three and a half year period called the Great Tribulation. The book of Revelation goes into great detail explaining all the various judgments that will fall upon the earth in that period of time leading up to the coming of the Lord. One of those judgments, in fact, a couple of those judgments, um, talks about that the earth is going to be struck by a comet, an asteroid, a heavenly body, and it will hit the earth and that it will open the abyss of the earth. In other words, it will penetrate deeply into the earth and it will blow debris and smoke up into the atmosphere that will darken the earth from the sun's light, the moon, and, and stars, because there will be all this debris in the atmosphere, and it will darken the earth. The earth will go into darkness. And it goes on to say that that darkness is going to be five months. So, and it's called the final days of indignation. So the Great Tribulation is three and a half years long. We're talking about the last five months of it, though, is the earth is in darkness. Now, for all of the judgments that have taken place earlier on the earth, this is the one that is going to be most gripping to mankind. And here's the reason why. Scientists tell us that if the earth was ever darkened in that fashion, where the sun was not seen uh, for, they say, after four months. It's what they call an Ellie. It's an extinction-level event. They're saying, basically, if the sun's darkened for four months, everybody's going to die. And oh, by the way, the Lord says that when he returns, that had he not shortened the days of coming back, that all flesh would have died. The event that is sending the signal to the entire world that we're dying is this darkness. When the darkness comes, that is, that's a death knell. That is saying everybody on the earth is going to die, uh, and for most of them prematurely. Um, however, in the midst of that, it says that the remnant, the people that believe the Lord that are still on the earth, the tribulation saints, they will have light. The other people will be in darkness, but they will have light. Now, let me take you back to the judgments that was in Egypt uh, leading to the Egyptian exodus. There was a time, and in fact, it's the ninth judgment, that there was darkness for three days. And, but there were lights in the homes of the Israelites. Egypt was in darkness, but the Israelites had light. 
They had luminaries in their homes. This prophecy is referring to the old one and speaking into the future that even the whole earth is covered in darkness, there will be light in the homes of those that know the Lord. And that many people will be coming to that light uh, to be there for it. And then he goes on to say, he says that when we begin to see what the Lord is doing, and namely, as this darkness ends, and Zechariah describes it as the clouds begin to roll, scroll back, and what that is, is that, that all that dirt and debris in the atmosphere begins to collect, and it takes on moisture, and it freezes, and, they, and, and it becomes hail. And the Bible talks about 100-pound hailstones being precipitated down. And oh, by the way, you throw enough debris up into the atmosphere where it blocks out the sun, when it eventually does come down, it will definitely come down as hailstones because the hail and the ice forms around a little particle uh, that will collect the moisture and hold the moisture, which would be smoke debris or dirt or whatever it is in the atmosphere. And the, this hail comes, you know, raining down. Um, and it describes... That is like a judgment that fell upon Egypt. They had hailstones as well that were mixed with fire. And it says that as the clouds begin to scroll back to set that up for it to happen, that's when we see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That's when, and, and the scripture tells us, the brightness of him coming from space is seven times brighter than the sun. Now, if you go outside and you look up and look directly at the sun, you can only bear to look at it a, a, a few moments before it's harmful to, to your eyes. The brightness of him coming is seven times brighter than the sun. And we are told in the Gospel of Luke that we're to lift our heads up for our redemption is drawing near. Now, this is the way Isaiah says, Then you will see and be radiant. The light will shine on you, and you'll be extremely bright. The light will be that bright. This is in verse 5. And your heart will thrill and rejoice. And the Hebrew there, for what we translate as thrill and rejoice, it, it, it's the strongest way the Hebrew can express it. It says, literally, you will be so... Um, occupied with the joy of the moment that your body will like shudder. It's, it's like, it's like your, your, your body is and your mind is having the extre most extreme joy that you can have uh, at that moment. And it says that we'll just shudder with, with, and be thrilled, you know, with the moment. That's the picture of the sign of the Son of Man coming in heaven. That is the, that's Isaiah's picture. Of, of him coming back. Now, it goes on a little bit further and begins to talk about wonderful things that are going to happen to Israel, namely the kingdom. And it says, all the nations will be coming. And the very best that you can possibly think of, for, and that's the way Isaiah expresses it, is you, you think of all the very best things that he could think of in his day. And he said, all of that will be coming. You know, the flocks from this place, the gold from that place, the frankincense from this place. Now, it's not, you know, this is one place where it's metaphoric. It's not talking about those are the specific things that literally are brought. What it's really talking about is the abundance of the nations are brought. Every good thing 
is being brought uh, to the kingdom. Uh, because, you know, it's all coming to now build the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom. And then I want to show you this very interesting verse, verse 8, where there's a very fascinating question asked. Who are those who fly like a cloud and like the dove to their lattices? The answer to that question is you and me. Why? Why is it that we'll fly like clouds and suddenly ascend up like a dove would take off from the ground and land on the lattices? It's because you and I, at the coming of the Lord, we get new bodies. Uh, not this mortal body that dies. You'll receive the immortal body, the body that lives forever with the Lord. And we are told that our body that we get in that time will be a body just like the Lord's body that he used when the disciples saw him after the resurrection. And let me just remind you of a couple of things about that body that he had. He walked through a wall. He sat down at a table. He ate a piece of fish. He got up and he walked through the wall again. Now let me tell you something. That's a feat. Furthermore, on the day he ascended, he simply lifted off the ground and went into the clouds. The body that we're to get in the kingdom, the replacement body for this mortal one, is able to do those same things. Now, I'm a scientific per person, and I have a scientific background. I can tell you scientifically how that's possible. All you have to do is have a body that has some sort of ability to adjust the density of your molecules. If I make my molecules so less dense, they can be less than gas. They can be to the point where solid objects could go right through me and it wouldn't affect me whatsoever. Or I could get on the other side of a solid thing. I could make myself so light that I would float like a gas in the atmosphere and I'd just float up. And I, I could adjust it to where that I could hover at this place or, uh, you know, land, you know, adjust. And by the way, the scripture tells us that when the Messiah returns and we get our new bodies... You're in default float mode that you ascend. And you ascend to the clouds. And you meet the air, the, the Lord in the air. And at the resurrection, and even for those that may still be alive at the time of the resurrection, we all get these bodies at the same time and we ascend. We ascend up into the air. Now later on, it says that we land in a new mountain called Jerusalem. So we travel, not by ship, not by airplane, but we travel like the clouds do, and we travel over to Jerusalem and we land. And I personally, I think, uh, the number of days that are involved there, it probably takes us a little bit to get oriented to our new bodies and to be able to adjust the density of the molecules so that you'll land I think the default mode is float. You go up and float, and you stay floating in the air until you can figure out how to let yourself down, back down to the ground again. Now, as I said to you before, uh, the Jewish people and the rabbis, when they read this, they see it as all as metaphor. 
The reason why we can see the literal part is because later on, what the Messiah did and what was taught by the disciples is completely consistent with this. That this explains a lot of things about what the Lord told us about and the disciples told us about and, and the apostles told us about. This is the basis of that. This is what the Lord is doing. When he, in the final days of the tribulation, we'll have light, everybody else will be in darkness. Then we'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming. We will thrill, we'll be rejoiced, we'll be resurrected. Guess what? We get a new body. We float. We go to the clouds. We, we, we're like a, a, a dove that goes up to the lattice and hangs on. We're floating in the air. We can fly. Now, as fancy as that sounds, uh, or fanciful, maybe I'll use that term, as fanciful as that sounds, it's no more fanciful than the description the Lord says the, what his kingdom is going to be like. He says his kingdom will be like nothing that's ever been seen before, that man has ever seen on the earth before. Verse 10, he goes on to say, And foreigners will build up your walls, and your kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. And your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night. Now before, if you remember in the Hoftors of Consolation, that it shifted and it said that he was going to console Israel and redeem Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden it shifted to a very positive thing. This is the sixth portion, very positive. You know, that's what you understood before, but we're going to do very positive things now. You know, I'm going to have compassion on you now. And, and my face will be turned toward you. You do know that right now in the days that we're living, the way we have been living... It's only now that we're beginning to see the face of the Lord turn toward us. And I believe in the modern messianic movement that part of the expression is God's face is turning toward us and we're now receiving favor. And why, why do we do that? Because we say the Shema. And in the Shema, if you remember, may the Lord, when he sees you, get a smile on his face. That means he has to have turned his face toward you. You know, and may he, his countenance, in other words, the full expression of his face, and then he grants you peace. You know, that, that's all based on, may the Lord look at you. That's the blessing of the Shema. May the Lord look at you and grant you favor and grant you, grant you peace. And that obviously is something that happens at the end of the exile, in the, in the greater sense. And that's what we have being described for us as being the wonderful things of the kingdom. Now let me look just a little bit further into our chapter. Um, it says, verse 11, And may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. And that's talking about the judgment. If these people are not going to join with God and his kingdom, they ain't going to be around. They got judged the day of the Lord. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress, together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. He's listing off things that, that in Lebanon they were known for their incredible different woods. The cedars of Lebanon. 
you know, is, a, is a, in fact, the symbol for Lebanon is a big cedar tree. That's what they're known for. That's their greatest glory, greatest natural thing. And he said, even the natural things from all the nations, they'll be brought to you. They'll be a part of it. Verse 14, and the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, not only is he speaking of Jerusalem, but he's talking about the people. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, if you remember the word Zion, what it really means, it's a technical term having to do with a branch that has been grafted in. We are all grafted in branches. You know, we, none of us are natural branches anymore. We've, even the natural branches have been grafted in. Everybody's been broken away from the Lord. We all have to be grafted back in. Jeremiah teaches that. Paul teaches that. And so we're called the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We are the grafted in ones that have been brought back. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations. You will suck the breasts of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. One of the things that I think is essential in understanding all of God's plans and truly interpreting um, at a personal level and as, as we step back and survey level of what is the plan of God, what is God really doing. Uh, the best example goes back to um, Egypt. Was the grand purpose of God in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt was to redeem them and get them out of slavery? No, it wasn't. That was a byproduct that was something that happened to their benefit. What was the overarching principle? What was the overarching purpose that God was doing in that? He wanted Pharaoh, all of Egypt, the children of Israel, and all the witnesses of the world to know that he was the Lord. There is no other God. He's the one and only God. That was the real purpose of why we ended up getting stuck in Egypt, being enslaved, and the Lord came and delivered us out to show to the world, to give a testimony to the world that he was the Lord and he was the one and only Lord. Now, stop and think about me with this for a moment. This most excellent book we've got here, the first five books, the Torah that we go through, um, let me summarize the whole Torah teaching too. It's really the story of a group of people who were saved out of Egypt and they were on a journey to the promised land. That's really what it is, the story is. The first book is just simply explaining where did these people come from and how did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. But the rest of the book, all the other the four remaining books, is all about what happened to these people as they came out of that and they were on the journey to the promised land. It's a micro teaching of all of us of all generations. All of us in all generations are in trials and tribulations. We are subject to sin, and we're in bondage and slavery to sin. 
And God has given us a promise. I will deliver you out of trials and tribulations. I will deliver you out, and I will take you to the promised land. And the promised land we're really talking about is the Messianic kingdom. And it was just a teaching example <laughs> to explain what God was going to be doing with everybody. Now, if the original purpose of that whole Egyptian thing was not about the salvation of those people, but it was really about getting the world to know who the Lord is, what do you think the real purpose of the day of the Lord, the great tribulation and all that is? What do you think that purpose is? It's the same one. And for us as tribulation saints, let me just say this to you. You have no more promise about being saved out of the great tribulation than the children of Israel had about being saved out of Egypt. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of God achieving even greater goals. And if we're going to get on board supporting what are the real goals of God, even though the example of those that came out of Egypt, and we apply the example for us as the last generation in the last days, then we need to stop making the mistakes that our ancestors made coming out of Egypt. And we should get above this thing, see it for what it is, and get on board with what is God's plan. And God's plan is to make his name known throughout all of the earth. And that the byproduct of doing that is we get to be part of his family, get to be part of his remnant, and we receive the benefits of redemption and being saved. We get that as a, as a byproduct of being part of his house and being a part of what he is doing. And that is every bit as true about when we go through the great tribulation as it was for our ancestors when they were coming out of Egypt and, and making their journey to the promised land. And as you all know, the parallels between the judgments that fell on Egypt, they're all paralleled in the book of Revelation, in the judgments that will fall on the world in the last three and a half years. There's a direct link between every judgment to the things happening. And I believe that God, this is in fulfillment of God says, I'm not like a man. I don't make impulsive decisions. I don't come up with new plans for things. He says, I have planned it beforehand and I will do it. And if we want to understand the plan of God, one of the first things you have to do, if you're going to understand uh, Bible eschatology, the study of last things, the first thing you have to do is study the beginning. Because the Lord has said to us by the prophet Isaiah, as a matter of fact, that um, I was telling you the end while I was telling you the beginning. I was telling you what was going to happen at the end when I told you all about the creation story. You know, the six days of labor, seventh day was the Sabbath and rested. Well, there's 6,000 years of the history of this world, and on the last day, 1,000 years, it's the Messianic kingdom. It's like the Sabbath of millennia. If you want to understand what the Sabbath or the millennium is about, you want to understand the Messianic kingdom, go back to Genesis 1 and study the history of the creation of the earth because he said, hey, I was telling you the end while I was telling you the beginning. And the people that can see that pattern and can go through the rest of the Torah, and in particular to see the great story of the Torah, of the exodus from Egypt and all the things they had to go through, you're seeing the grand story, the whole layout of what God has been doing throughout all of the generations, and in particular, what he will complete with the last generation.
If you really want to know eschatology, the end things, you've got to go spend some time in the Torah and learn all that history. Because that's what he's planning on doing. And so when I mentioned to you the judgments in Revelation, parallel the judgments that were upon Egypt, <clears throat> it's true. It's true. Back then, it was, it was 10 judgments. Up here is 21 judgments. Back then, it came in sets of threes. Up here, it's going to come in sets of sevens. It's, it's there, the whole story. And here's Isaiah describing to us the end events. Uh, and he's, he's part of this argument of that but trust the Lord because in the end, God will console Israel, will redeem Jer Jerusalem from all of the other elements of the world. And it will become a praise. It will become something that is wonderful uh, for us. Um, verse 15. Whereas you had been forsaken and hated, no one passing through, I'll make you an everlasting pride. For a joy from generation to generation. Let me go down a little bit further. Verse 18. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Uh, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness from the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. That's God dwelling with mankind. That's what it will be like when God doesn't sit on his throne at the, way off beyond the edge of the universe, but he's here and he dwells with us here. I keep reminding people that when, you, when the next event for us, you know, after we die, we're not going to heaven. The Messiah's coming here. And we will be raised to live here not on some cloud with some baby angel shooting arrows. You know, we're going to be here. And this is where his kingdom will be. Now, I want to show you this last couple of verses here. Verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Who being glorified? For what purpose are we really doing this? So that he, the Lord, is glorified. Which basically means that we acknowledge he really is the Lord. We recognize him for who he really is. And then this verse, verse 22. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of a personal story with regard to that. Many years ago, uh, when I was starting my public ministry, one of the things that I prayed and I talked to the Lord about, because we talked about the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist and the judgments that will be coming, but, you know, I talked about the Lord's salvation and deliverance from this, but when I would go out, most of the people focused in on the, the ominous-sounding things, the doom and gloom stuff. They, they, and I, I recognized that they had a tendency to do that, and I was praying to the Lord, and I said, Lord, can you give me uh, just something real simple that could be an encouragement to your people because, you know, going out and telling this, this end of the ages message and all the things that's going to happen the day of the Lord and all this, this is, this is an ominous message. 
not all the believers receive that as a really good thing. Matter of fact, most of them are scared half to, out of their wits about it. And I've seen lots of people who have heard me teach and picked up and walked away and didn't want to hear another word from me. They were so scared. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to scare anybody at all. I was truly trying to tell them, that, that orient them to what's coming and what the wonderful things the Lord was going to do. Well, I'm asking the Lord. I said, Lord, how do, how do I do this? How do I find a way to be truly encouraging to those that are afraid? And I remembered that the thing that the children of Israel were most afraid of was what would happen to their children. And all I can tell you is, I guess it's the closest thing that I've ever had to a vision from the Lord. I, I, I was awake. I was very aware of the fact I was awake. But I was having this thought. I could kind of see my thoughts on this. And I found myself standing at a podium teaching. And it was a darkened room. There was only light that came down on me. And only a little bit of light like on the first row. And on the first row there was a young woman holding a baby, and she was weeping quietly. And it began to bother me. And so I stopped speaking. I stepped down from the podium. I went beside her, and I said to her, I said, woman, why are you weeping? This actually was, I guess, the vision that took place. I said, woman, why are you weeping? And she looked up, and she responded, for the fear of my child's life. And I said to her, you know, my voice spoke to her, and I said, Woman, do you not understand that you are holding a nation in the Messianic kingdom? That this one child will bear children, who will bear children, who will increase in the kingdom and become, that kid will become a nation in the Messianic kingdom. You don't, you don't realize what you're holding? You know, the Lord will surely protect your child. He's protecting a whole world of people. Now, I, I ended that vision thing. I was very encouraged by that. I said, Lord, that was wonderful. That's tremendous, you know, to give that message uh, to people. And as I was thinking about it, and then it was the next day, the Lord took me to this passage of Scripture. Verse 22, that's exactly what that's saying. Look at it again. The smallest one will become a clan. You know what a clan is? That's a thousand strong. That's a thousand people is called a clan. And the least one, like a baby, will become a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, the millennial kingdom is a thousand years. Is it possible that God could take a newborn child on day one of the messianic kingdom and raise that child up, mature them, make them an adult, have children, and at the end of the thousand years there's a mighty nation on the earth started from that small child? And the answer is yes. The answer is very much yes. That is possible. And that's what the Lord is promising to do. Now consider all of the children that will be going to the kingdom. You and me, I don't know if we'll be bearing children. Maybe, maybe we will. Uh, 
But I do know there's a lot of children that will come into the kingdom and they will truly prosper. And now do you understand when the disciples tried to stop some children coming up to uh, Yeshua and he said, no, 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 you suffer. You go out of your way to make sure that children come to me. He said, because such is the kingdom. The number of children in the kingdom is off the scales. When it talks about that you and I will reign in his kingdom, we're not going to be reigning over other nations and unbelievers. We'll be taking care of all of the children of the kingdom. That's who we'll have rule and authority over, is to train up children, you know, in the kingdom. And there'll be, as the, as the scripture says, there'll be no end to the increase it will truly enlarge it. That's the description of the kingdom. The children will be the way more mightier group than us uh, in the kingdom. Amen? Very encouraging word from Isaiah speaking to our future. And we in the last generation, this is of particular interest to us now, the consolation, uh, consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you again for this Sabbath and for the encouraging word from the prophet Isaiah. Help us, Lord, have a vision of your great plan to understand the purpose of your plan and that we'll be in support of that plan. We thank you in Yeshua's name, our coming King. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, to chapter 21, where our Brett Hadashah teaching will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again, that we can open your word and that you can speak to us uh, in our lives, where whatever situation we might be in, wherever we might be. Father, I pray that uh, every time that we open your word, that you would, uh, your will for our lives would become alive and powerful and uh, that you would teach us your ways, Father. So we thank you once again for this opportunity to study your word and your instruction. I pray everyone is blessed on this Sabbath day as we dig into the Torah and all of the commandments and instructions that you give to us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for choosing us from among all peoples, giving us your covenant, and uh, and ministering to us each and every Sabbath. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Luke chapter 21, uh, the very first couple of verses, tells us the little story of the widow's might, in which uh, Yeshua was sitting with his disciples, and they saw a widow come and make a donation to the temple treasury. And what it is, this is what they saw. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 1 says this, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting two in two mites, or two copper coins, as some translations say. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have they put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. This is one of the traditional readings for our Torah portion this week of Kitavo, uh, which comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 26. And it's very interesting why this is one of the uh, traditional readings for this portion. Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 26, we have the instruction about the children of Israel when they enter into the land to bring a gift 
to the Lord, to bring a gift before the Levites, and that this was a, a procedure very specifically that the Lord wanted the children of Israel to bring their first fruits offerings to the temple when the Lord would show the place that he would put his name and that the children of Israel, after dwelling securely in the land, would bring this gift. This is a very interesting gift. This is one of those, uh, what is considered to be a mincha offering, or it's not a, it's not a uh, sacrifice of an animal, but it's a gift of the first fruits of their land or of the vineyard or of the orchard or whatever land they would take possession of in the promised land. They were to bring this offering. Now, why is this offering so important? Well, one, first of all, we should always give to the Lord, especially when he commands it. He says, I command you to give me a gift. Let's bring a gift before the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord wants us to, the the relationship between us and him, the covenant between us and him, to be a two-way street. You know, the Lord has given all kinds of gifts to us. And in the case of the children of Israel, he's giving them the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, as an inheritance to them. It's a gift and it's an exchange between God and his people. And it's all a part of the joining and the forming of a covenant between two parties. And that's one of the things that you, if you have a close enough relationship with somebody that you've given gifts to each other, well, then that's a certain level of a relationship that you might have a, a maybe a, an acquaintance that you don't give gifts either on their birthday or any other holiday, and, but you're not close enough to exchange gifts. Well, certain people you are. In the case of a marriage ceremony, that's what the ring, the engagement ring represents. The, the, the man and the wife, they exchange these rings as a gift that one gives a, a gift to the other and they exchange these things as a sign of their covenant. It's simply just one sign. Imagine if you went to a wedding and only one of them gave the other a ring and the other one didn't return a ring back to them. Well, this gets kind of a one-sided affair, don't you think? <laughs> They're not, that, that there's not this mutual exchange. You're like, what kind of marriage is this? That one is, that one is less than the other or there's a difference or a distinguishing a, a, a difference between the two that one gets a gift and the other does not? See, and that's why the relationship between us and God has to be a two-way street. So God giving the gift of the land to the children of Israel, they have to return a gift back to them. Well, it's very fitting that that gift back to them was out of the abundance and out of the blessing of God giving the land to the children of Israel. So bring me the first fruits. Bring me the result of the vineyard that I gave you. Bring me the result of the orchard or the field that give, and bring one basket. That's all God is asking for back here in Deuteronomy chapter 26, that each one is to bring one basket of an offering before the Lord. This is not much. This is not going to hurt the, the, the abundance and anything. But, but ultimately, somebody might look at that and just say, well, I have this field, and it's like I want to get the most bang for my buck, and I want to sell every bit of it that, that I possibly can. But the Lord says no. Bring me something. Bring me a part of it. And this is all about the nature of us in our relationship with the Lord and, and to bring those gifts, especially in the ways that God has commanded a gift to be brought to him. On any of the, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, you're to bring a gift before the Lord. Let no man among you appear empty-handed. And so anytime that somebody would go to the temple to worship the Lord, they were to not come empty-handed as well. Now, back to the story of the widow's mite, when it says that, look, she had two copper coins. These were, it was the equivalent of pennies in this day, and in this day and age, pennies aren't worth very much anymore. 
In fact, when the U.S. Mint loses money on pennies every single year because the, the, the uh, copper that a penny is minted on is worth more than the penny, the resulting coinage that is produced. So the whole idea of, of the, you know, the, the value of what this woman actually gave, ultimately any onlooker would just be like, well, that's not much. That's not much. That's not worth anything. But the Messiah, of course, knowing the woman's circumstances, he kind of had that ability to know that because he knew the woman at the well. He knew how many husbands that she had. And he can look at this widow bringing, you know, donating to the, to the treasury. And he, he knows how much money she has. And he knows that this was her livelihood that she was bringing before the Lord. Whatever that those two copper coins could have bought for her, for her life to sustain, whether that was for bread or food or for whatever she else she might have needed in her life, she was coming and bringing a gift before the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord wants our best. He wants the best of what we have to give. That's why he asked for the first fruits. That first fruit, the first time that you ever get something fresh off of a plant that you've grown, that first tomato, that first apple off of a brand new tree, that is the best. That is absolutely the best because it's like this is what we've been waiting for this entire time. Everything that I've labored for has led to this moment, that first piece of fruit that comes off of that plant, and God says that part is mine. And ultimately, it's an honor that we have to give back to the creator of the universe. We wouldn't have any of these things if it weren't for him. We wouldn't have trees. We wouldn't have fields. We wouldn't have plants. We wouldn't have the earth. We wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for him. We have to give the Lord our best. You know, ultimately, the, the, the minimum idea when we talk about tithing is, you know, give 10% to the Lord, and, and then, you know, the rest belongs to you out of your increase and, and everything, so you can live your life and sustain, and we talk about the, that 10%. But there's some people that donate more than 10%. There's some people that donate even more or by faith put their money into something that, or, or, or any other uh, product they produce or whatever, and they, on faith, give more to somebody than is necessary. I had a wonderful story that happened to me not that long ago. I was at Mardell's, which is a Christian bookstore, and I was buying a couple of materials um, for the children's class of, uh, of our local congregation uh, here. And I went there to lay down some stuff, and I, I, I put it all there and was getting ready to do the purchase. And some guy came up behind me, and he said, I'd like to, like to buy that for you. And that never happened to me. I've heard stories about this happening in certain people, and you might see some viral videos about it. If somebody offering to buy somebody's purchase, whether it's at a grocery store or, or otherwise, and, and it never happened to me, and he, he did, this, did this for me. I don't know why it was me. Now, I certainly had the means, and I was ready to, to, to make the purchase, and I, I, I double-checked, and I, I, all the thing, and I thanked him, and the man's name was Jerry, and it's like, and I said, I'll pray for you, your family, and he said, the Lord loves you, and, and, and bless you, and all these things, and it was this beautiful exchange of, of him not even knowing me, but was, was paying it forward to something, to, to be a blessing to somebody else. And it was, it, it was emotionally a wonderful experience. I immediately, you know, got on the phone, started texting friends and just say, hey, check out what happened, just happened to me and things. And I told him, I'm going to pay it forward. So I haven't done that yet. But at some point, I want to look for that opportunity to give more and to give to, to, to something or a cause or a feeling or just be led of the spirit to give to somebody who is in need. That's ultimately what the Lord wants us to do is he wants it to stir in our hearts to do good for someone. 
And maybe it's not necessarily donations straight to a church or a congregation or a ministry, though there are those in, uh, that labor for the kingdom and are like modern-day priests who labor to minister to the brethren and that those people are taken care of by the tithes and offerings of, of the brethren. But also, there's nothing like giving to somebody, finding a need and being proactive with your gift to the Lord and just give it to an area that appears to be in need. And what a beautiful thing that that is. And ultimately, we should always be encouraged to be giving and not just giving just the 10%. No, though that, that purchase could have come out of Jerry's 10% of his, his increase. Maybe that's how he chooses to give his, his tithe. But also there are those that give out of their livelihood, give out more than that, and who on faith worship the Lord in that way. And what an amazing blessing it is is uh, for them. And I pray that the Lord would continue to minister to them and take care of them, even if they give out of their own livelihood. And that's the trust and that's the faith that they have. Now, I'm not saying that all of us are, are going to ever have that faith and be able to do that and make that decision. But ultimately, when it comes to giving to the Lord, that's what true giving should be. So what a blessing that is and an encouragement to us that every time that we go and we think about what the Lord has done for us, the gifts he has given to us, meeting our needs, we should always be mindful to return that back to him. Just as he commanded the children of Israel to just bring a basket of the fruit of the land that he gave to the children of Israel. So what a blessing that is. The story in Deuteronomy in our Torah portion this week continues on and goes back into the details of what the children of Israel were to do when they go to into the land and go to the mountains of Gerasim and Mount Ebal. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this, that going to Mount Gerizim, they were to put uh, six tribes onto one mountain, and they were going to bless that one, and six tribes on the other one, and they were going to curse that. And in our Torah portion, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it goes through the very specific pronounced uh, curses that were to be said at this time and at this procedure. Now, when we talked about this before, a couple of weeks ago, it was this uh, ceremony was referenced a couple of weeks ago in a couple of chapters earlier in Deuteronomy that I talked about the story of Yeshua when he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And the reason why we talked about that was the fact that the Samaritans is a sect of Judaism that worships at Mount Gerizim in the town of Shechem and believing that to be the mountain of God where all sacrifices and worship was to be done to the Lord. And that this was obviously the biggest divide between the Samaritans and the rest of the mainstream Judaism and Jews and the children of Israel, that it was at Jerusalem where the building of the temple by King David and his son King Solomon, and that that is the place where the worship of the Lord should be to go to Jerusalem three times a year. According to the Samaritans, you go to Mount Gerizim three times a year. And that this was a division between the two. And in the story of the woman at the well, of course, there was the Messiah whose poignant words were that it is not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that we will worship, but the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And that what an encouragement that is to, it's not about us being on those mountains or at a mountain to worship the Lord, but that we worship the Lord in our hearts and from our hearts and on the temple and the altar that is in here, that is where the true worshipers of God worship the Father. And this is a blessing and encouragement to us scattered throughout the nations and how we walk and worship the Lord. Well, the thing I want to do this week, specifically talking about this, this story and all the curses that were to be pronounced here on Mount Ebal, I want to contrast that and instead take us to Matthew chapter 5. 
which is one of the most common portion uh, passages we can tend to go to in the Brit Hadashah. But we haven't yet really talked about the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, when the Messiah began the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, we have this parallel of standing on a mountain and things being pronounced. Rather than curses on Mount Ebal being pronounced, we now have a series of blessings that the Messiah begins the Sermon on the Mount with that has become known as the Beatitudes. The, these blessings that, that God gave that kicked off this entire teaching. And the thing that I love, I love about the Beatitudes, it's encouraging to read every single time. And, and whenever you do read these things, you want to be the people that is the fulfillment of these blessings. And what's interesting about it is that these are things that maybe you don't necessarily initially would want to be, but ultimately because of the blessing that is returned back to you, because of you are either poor in spirit or you find yourself in mourning, you do want to be these things before the Lord because you want to be blessed because the, because of, of these blessings. In the same way, if you go back to the curses that were pronounced here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 27, you read these things and you're like, nope, I don't want to be those either. I don't, well, back in Beatitudes, I don't really want to be poor in spirit. I don't really want to be in mourning. Well, you go back to these curses and you certainly don't want to be one who uh, holds your father and mother in contempt and becomes cursed or uh, moves your neighbor's boundary marker or causes the blind to wander off the road or any other series of things that are terrible, horrible sins, according to Torah, and that you are cursed because of doing them. All of those things back in the Torah, these curses that were pronounced, are things that destroy, things that destroy relationships, things that destroy covenants that you have between one another, things that destroy your covenant between you and God. Oh, through all of these things about taking a bribe or, or any of these terrible sins, the very last one is the one that is the one that gets all of us, that it says, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. Nobody wants that curse. But of course, we might you sit here and say, is like, is anyone perfect in the law and in observing them and, and to always observe? Do you confirm every word of the law in all things? No? Well, then Torah says you're cursed. These are the things that we, we, we don't want. These are the curses that we, that we don't want to have. But we have to, these again are these teachable things of if you can do these physical things, maintain these physical boundaries, which is actually what all these curses are about. It's all about boundaries. Two of them are, 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 are specifically about your neighbor, about your neighbor's boundary, your neighbor's landmark, or to attack your neighbor secretly, that you're obviously crossing the boundary by which the relationship between you and your neighbor should be. And also some of these things have some sexual sins associated with this, that you're crossing boundaries that are not meant to be done between relationships, between fellow human beings. And the boundaries between you and your parents, and then making sure that you honor your father and mother. These are all boundaries that you are not to cross, physical things that you can say, nope, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that. These are things that you can do to not be cursed. Now, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you have the Beatitudes, these are things that are less physical to do. These are spiritual actions that are given to us by the Messiah that give us blessing. And this is the, the beautiful contrast between the Torah and the Word of God, or the, word of, the words of Yeshua and the teachings of Yeshua, that there's this beautiful balance between truth and spirit, that here is the true obedience of what it is to obey the Torah, but then this is the spirit by which we do them. They're actually one and the same. But we sit here and we contrast, and, and, and you know we can sit here and talk about the letter of the law, 
or the spirit of the law? What's the purpose of the commandment? What are we really supposed to learn from the commandment? Rather than just looking at it as a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, let's make this big list of things we can't do and big list of things that we do. Let's add to those lists so that we make sure we got all of our bases covered. And that's our religion and that's what we're going to do. Yeah, but are we really digging into it to understand the spirit of the law? What's the spirit of what God is trying to teach us in these actions that we do in our obedience of his commandments? That's how the Messiah taught the Torah. Beginning here on the Sermon on the Mountain, he's always said, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, this is what you're supposed to learn. You've heard it said, don't murder. Yeah, if you've literally never physically taken your hands and murdered somebody, well, then yeah, you've kept the commandment. But have you ever hated somebody in your heart? The Messiah says that's the same as murder. That's the spirit behind all of it. That's, a, that's where we almost, we can't, it's not just about the physical boundaries of things, but it's the spiritual boundaries of where we let our mind and our emotions go to commit a sin in the spirit, even though you didn't physically do it. This is what the spiritual blessings are for those that are, that are being described here by the Messiah here in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first of these began, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Receiving the kingdom of heaven, it's like, what, what a beautiful, who wants to go to the kingdom of heaven? I do. We all want to go to the kingdom of heaven. Where's the kingdom of heaven? We don't really know. It's the spiritual place. It's a, is the kingdom of heaven come about here on earth? Or is it this place with golden streets and pearly gates? And, and, and a, what, what is the kingdom of heaven? Many people have speculated what it is. It's the spiritual thing, the spiritual idea of paradise, where we want to go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to be lifted up in spirit. It's like, no. Sometimes those that are the, the, the humble, the meek, those that are less than, those are the ones that will actually be given the kingdom. Remember all the other teachings that the Messiah gives, he's talking about those that humble themselves will be exalted. Those that exalt themselves will be humble. So if you stand up and say, I'm, I'm rich in spirit, well, what's going to happen to them? That's eh, not to say that they won't be in the kingdom, but who are they really going to be the inheritors of the kingdom? These are things, well, once again, you look at that and you're like, poor in spirit. Why do I want to be poor in spirit? Well, the thing is, is these are words that lift up. These are words that encourage these are when somebody is in pain, when somebody is in suffering, when so these are the words that lift them up and say, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. This is why, when it comes to the teaching of the gospel or being a good Christian, this is why you go to the people who need to hear something, that bit of encouragement, that word that comes from the Lord, and you're lifting somebody up out of the, the ash heap. And, and bringing them and, and giving them equity in the kingdom of God, and you include them in all of the blessings. This is evangelism. This is what God was intending for all of mankind. If there is a religion, which there's a lot of them, that do no evangelism, that do not reach out to help those who are in need, and do not see the blessings they have from the Word or whatever holy writ or holy scripture they follow, and they have these blessings, for them to think that those are isolated and only for them and not supposed to go to somebody else, then that's a very selfish religion. That's a very, a very isolated religion that it's not that, that they don't want the, they have the blessing, God's given them blessing, and then somehow you think that God shouldn't then bless somebody else, maybe with the same blessings. When you are blessed, you go and you share it with somebody else because out of the abundance of what you have been given, 
share with those that are in need. This is the instruction through all of Israel to not forsake the stranger among you. For you were strangers in the land of Canaan, Abraham was. You were strangers in the land of Egypt, as the children of Israel were. And then they're saved, and they're like, but don't forsake the stranger that's among you. I'm trying to teach you this. Share out of the blessings that you have and give to those that are in need. That's why the words and the teaching of Yeshua and being a good Christian is about going and helping those that are in need. If you're not doing that, if that's not an active part of your faith or your religious walk, then you are that isolated religion. That isolate where it's like you have the blessings and you're good that you met and you don't really care about it going to anybody else. Now, look, not everybody is called to be an evangelist. There's different offices of ministry, and there's teachers and pastors, and, and it's, a one, it's one of the offices of ministry, but ultimately the entire body of Messiah operates with all of them, where we need the teachers, pastors, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, all working together to edify the body. We can't just have one doing one job, and that's it. We all have to be working and serving. That's ultimately the entire nature of God and what, the, what we are taught through the Scripture and through the Bible is to lift up those and to do good. Through Abraham and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's not isolated to just one particular group or just Abraham's seed that is blessed. All the families of the earth are to be blessed by the words. That's why we go to those that are less than us or less fortunate than us, and we bring them along with us. Those are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you lost something, it's like, again, these are the words, be blessed. And they are blessed because here's the thing is when you have the opportunity to mourn, that means you still have life. You might be, you, you might be overcome by the emotion that, that some loved one has passed away. But you still have the life that God has given to you, and that is a blessing. And be comforted in and, 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 and all these things. Again, these, these are just these beautiful words that are, that are encouraging. So if you don't have a plaque of the Beatitudes, you know, this is why this is kind of, this sometimes is considered to be a little bit Christianity 101, but what it truly is, is these are the words, this is the spirit by which the Torah actually should be taught. Because remember, Yeshua said all of these things before he started teaching about Torah, before he started talking about commandments and eye for eye, and talking about loving your neighbor, and that's all teaching out of Torah. This is how he prefaced it. This is the thing that we need to do first and foremost before we get to the time of teaching about the commandments of God, is lifting up those who are the humble among us and encouraging them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the one where it's like we need to be encouraged to do righteousness, to do good, and to hunger for it. As just like if you're really hungry and you go and you find something to eat, that we should be hungry to do what is right in all circumstances and all situations. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you feel like you're satisfied. Sometimes you're, you're, you're hungry, you eat, you're done, and then you just you, you sit and you relax and you're good. But ultimately, righteousness is not something that we should ever be satisfied in which that we've done enough of it. Righteousness is something that we should live by. Such was the testimony of Abraham when it said, when, when God said of his friend Abraham that he is one who does righteousness and justice. That, that hope, I would pray that that would be our testimony in everything that we do, in every decision that is made. We should hunger and thirst and seek out righteousness, and then we shall be filled. 
and filled with the blessing that we're sort of seeking, that we won't feel empty at all. We'll feel like we've done good. We will be encouraged and blessed and strengthened in our own, in our own lives. Our spirit will be lifted up when we do what is right and what is good for others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is, of course, where, you know, you might be in some level of power over someone else and be ready to enact judgment upon them, yet you show mercy. You show leniency to somebody. And then when you are judged, you'll be judged by the same token. Those that are unmerciful to others to in a relationship and it's all like, I have no mercy for you. You know what they actually do? They actually burn bridges that they themselves will later have to cross. They themselves will be judged at some point in time. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for a bunch of years, but at some point we will all be judged. All will find ourselves standing before the Lord at the judgment seat, at the the house of judgment for the Lord to decide and all will have to give an account. And if you had the opportunity to show mercy in what would have been the righteous thing to do at the time, and you did not show that mercy to your fellow brother, you burned a bridge that you later were going to have to cross. And that is what it is to show mercy because you will obtain mercy. This is one of those shares and exchanges that we have to do in exchange with one another. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, again, we're starting to get into these really spiritual things of we can all sit and just debate on what the opinion of is. What is it to be pure in heart? I think one of the things that that, uh, the way my opinion uh, is on, on the matter is it reminds me of a child. It reminds me of the innocence of a child. It reminds me of, of the fact that it's a heart that is young, healthy, clean, pure, and it's ready to just do what it's meant to do. As we grow older, our heart gets a little dirty. So, you know, we eat a lot wrong things. We build up some cholesterol in there. And suddenly, we, our heart isn't as clean as it used to be. It's not as pure as it used to be. Now, that's a physical analogy, of course, of, you know, when you eat the wrong things and you build up the, the you know, the possibility of getting a heart attack here, which is literally the biggest killer in the world is literally having an unclean heart is the, with cardiac disease being the biggest killer in the world, statistically. Um, that's a physical example of a spiritual concept. That ultimately our heart, what comes from our innermost being, must be, again, what is pure, what is clean, what is righteous, what is beautiful. And that when we get a little crusty on the edges is when we start to lose some of that. And that so we have to have that pure heart, have a clean heart, because then you will see God. What does God always say about his presence? Well, you, that he will not be, his presence will not be in a place that is unclean. That's why when you went in before the temple, into the temple, you had to, the priests had to wash their hands, wash their feet. Yeah, everyone took a mikvah, mikvah bath before going up onto the temple mount. And they said, because they have to be pure, they have to be clean before they will be in the presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, and they will see God. Bless, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the one thing that I always like to do. Whenever you see conflict, we're surrounded by conflict all the time. And you want to be the one, you always want to find yourself, rather than picking a side, be the one that brings peace. Being the one, be the one that builds a bridge. Be the one that helps to, to decide a decision between one thing or another and bring peace to the situation, no matter what the conflict is. 
children try to do this growing up when they see their parents arguing. And there's sometimes that there'll be a little child that will come up and just be like, Dad, Mom, please stop fighting. You know, maybe they're old enough to actually start, like, negotiating, and then the parents feel horrible that their own child has to negotiate, uh, you know, this, this conflict between them. And sometimes that usually is the thing that brings, back, brings about the resolution of the conflict. It's because there was a peacemaker involved. Now, children shouldn't have to, it shouldn't be the responsibility of children to be the, the one who resolves those kind of conflicts. We all should be peacemakers among us. We all should be the one that tries to defuse the conflicts, to not have anything turn against one another. We need to be careful to maintain those things and to be the ones that bring about peace. Because if you are, then you'll become sons of the living God. Then you become, then that shows how you are the fa- in the family of God. And the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, where it says, even when that things happen to you, when, when you've been beaten down, when people are persecute you for following God, for being a believer, you will be an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Because, and, that's, and that's the blessing that comes upon us, so that even though we come, we follow, we, we walk this lifestyle, and even though other people might say something against us, think we're crazy for believing in God or, or following commandments that were written thousands of years ago, and being persecuted for doing those things, ultimately the blessing comes from the Lord. All those things still come from the Lord that we would be the ones who would inherit the kingdom. These are the blessings and the beatitudes that are here for us to be encouraged and to be strengthened. And these are the blessings that came from the mountain spoken by the mouth of the Lord. At the end of our Torah portion, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, at the first couple of verses, leading into next week's portion, which begins in Deuteronomy 29 at verse 10, there is one little sort of phrase that is described about the children of Israel here that in all of the covenant that is being given to them. If we go back to Deuteronomy 29 and we read this, and it says, starting in verse 2, it says, Moses called all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. And you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against you in battle, and we conquered them. And he's describing these great things that they have seen. Yet the children of Israel that wandered in the wilderness were ones that were not given eyes to see and ears to hear. Even though there were things they saw, and even though there were things they heard. This is ultimately a greater prophecy for those that more teaching was going to come. That yes, we have the example of what the children of Israel did and what they saw and what they experienced. But they did not perceive truly what was happening. They were still spiritually immature, righteously called the, or rightly called the children of Israel because of their spiritual maturity. That even though they saw these great signs and wonders, they did not believe. So how do we how do we be encouraged in our day and age that we if, if they even if you see signs and wonders yet 
they didn't they saw them and they didn't believe what about us and if we don't see signs and wonders can we still believe in fact that's how we're supposed to learn that's how we're supposed to learn to believe is believe in the unseen faith comes by hearing faith comes by hearing the word of god so when the word of god is spoken we hear it and we perceive it if we turn to matthew chapter 13 where we have the uh, instruction on the, of the parable of the sower, and where it's talking about that he spoke in this way, and, and, and talking about the parable of the sower, how seed sometimes fell by the wayside, or fell in the stony places, or fell fell in the good earth and grew. And there's a lesson that he was uh, that he was teaching and explaining that I don't have. Uh, I'm running out of time to get into the details of the parable of the sower, but I want to go to uh, verse 10 of Matthew 13, where he's talking about where the disciples question, why is he speaking in parables? Why is he speaking with these metaphors and these stories? And here is what the Messiah said. Verse 11, he answered them and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing, you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing, you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And for assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. He's speaking to the disciples, and he's pointing out there is a difference to the people that might see things, see wonders, hear of wonders, yet their ears are closed, yet their eyes are closed. And they don't see it and they don't hear it. We're not talking about physical eyes. We're not talking about physical ears. We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about those that fail to to understand what God is trying to do. And what it is is this. You want to teach people so that they learn and retain what has been given to them. See, God can tell us we I, or let's not say God. I could just tell you something outright, give you knowledge, give you a piece of information. Are you going to retain that information? Maybe if you commit it to memory, you write it down, and it's just this it's just this lecture and it's just point A to point B exchange of knowledge. What if instead of me telling it to you, <clears throat> what if I give you an example <clears throat> of something that you a story that you hear? And then you start running through your head all the possibilities and the examples. And then suddenly through the course of the story, you learn it and you come to the revelation of what I was trying to tell you without me straight up telling you. I didn't just tell you the information, but you learned it either through word picture or through description or through something else. Suddenly that thing that came into your mind that, that, that filled your brain with, with some bit of knowledge that you learned on your own That is something that is retained. You retain it because you created the idea, the memory of it, and you learned it. 
And that is the best way that you can actually learn anything. That's why God's, that's why Yeshua spoke in parables. So that there was something, so that there was a spiritual lesson to learn that when we finally have that aha moment, that we ourselves, that it was the spirit that filled our hearts, filled our minds, and it touched us to, in the innermost being. And it wasn't just telling you what's right or what's wrong, or just telling you what to do. We can stand here. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the sea for he made it, by his hands it formed dry land. This is the sea for he made it, by his hands it formed dry land. God into his presence with praise, singing and shouting proclaim that Adonai is a great God. God into his presence with praise, singing and shouting Worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord our Maker. Worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord our Maker. Come and worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord our Maker. for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.